episode 35 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five O podcast. I am your sassy and thick host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Rides. It's our first two-parter of season three, episodes 18 and 19, FOB Honolulu. Now, I'm actually recording this during a winter storm, so you may hear the plows go by. You also may hear people get stuck on my street and spin out. A winter storm is always entertaining when there are idiots out. Anyway, let's leave the snow behind. Let's go to Hawaii. Gentlemen, there are certain weapons, ultimate weapons, which every nation hesitates to use. Nuclear weaponry and biochemical warfare. These tools of destruction would leave the earth in ruins. An arid devastation so complete there would be no survivors, only victims. One area of vulnerability that has always remained sacrosanct. That is until now. Slide number one, please. Every nation has its own form of currency, honored and respected by the others. That is until now. Gentlemen, I'm speaking of economic warfare. That is attacking the credibility and value of another nation's currency. Season 3, Episodes 18 and 19, FOB Honolulu. Part 1 aired on January 27th, 1971. Part 2 aired on February 3rd, 1971. Directed by Michael O'Hurley, this is his ninth and 10th episodes out of 36, and written by Gerald Ludwig, this is his 7th and 8th episodes out of 12, and Eric Persavici, this is his 7th and 8th episodes out of 12. Corporal Kurtz, carrying his souvenir gold Buddha, deplanes with a bunch of other soldiers on R&R and goes through customs. Instead of getting on the bus to the local base, he gets in a cab and heads to the Ilokai Hotel. He checks in and gets on an elevator with a mother and daughter and two Asian businessmen. By the time he makes it to his floor, he's dead and the Buddha is gone. It's been stolen and delivered to our favorite Chinese agent, Wofat, who proceeds to smash it on the ground. However, the currency plates that he knew to be inside are blanks. He is most displeased. Five O's on the elevator murder scene where the doc informs Steve that Kurtz was killed by a small caliber bullet to the head, and a witness narrows down their possible suspects, the businessmen. According to the travel papers found in his pocket, Kurtz was just in from Saigon. However, Colonel Pierce shows up and informs Steve that he didn't have Kurtz on his R&R list. Fong further points out that all of the military clothes Kurtz had were brand new and not all the same size. Chin Ho talks to the customs man who remembers Kurtz and his cheap-ass Buddha, which Chin notes wasn't found with him in the elevator, which makes sense because it turns out that Kurtz is a guy named Leo Price who is not in the army, but a con man with a rap sheet who had apparently gone through a lot of trouble to smuggle something into the country, most likely in the Buddha. Enter Commander Ron Nicholson, an old friend of Steve's who has the inside track on what's going on. He escorts Steve to the governor's office, where they're met by Treasury Guy Carter and State Department prick Jonathan Kay, who proceeds to explain what's going on in a very dramatic fashion, complete with sideshow. 
Long story short, someone has crafted American currency plates that are so close to authentic that detecting the counterfeits will be extremely difficult. By flooding the market with these fake 20s, they'll devalue the currency and discredit the country. It's economic warfare. Rude. After their deep cover guy obtained them and was murdered for them, the U.S. offered a million-dollar no-questions-asked reward for their return, which brought out the best of the worst. Nicholson has tracked the stolen plates in the trail of bodies they've left. The last people known to handle the plates was Leo Price, who was working with Nicole Fleming, and Tony Madrid, who double-crossed his partners to Wofat after Price double-crossed him. So the government knows that the plates are coming to Honolulu, and they know the players in the game, Nicole Fleming a Russian KGB colonel quaintly known as Misha the Bear, and Wofad. Unaware of the latest developments, Danny goes with Nicole Fleming, posing as Price slash Kurtz's sister, to ID his body. Steve arrives, and as they walk down the hall to the exit, he confronts her with her true identity. But Nicole says she has nothing to hide and offers her room key to Steve. Chin and Kono search her room and find nothing, which isn't much of a surprise. Neither is the fact that 5-0 will be keeping a very close eye on Nicole. While Che Fong finds an example fake $20 bill in Price slash Kurtz's watch, Wofat gets some good news in the form of a tape recording which his associate helps self-destruct. Steve then meets Misha at the airport and they have a lighthearted exchange about Misha's vacation, in air quotes, with Steve subtly letting Misha know that he knows why he's really there. Wofat informs Madrid that his services are no longer required, which Madrid protests, but Wofat generously allows him to leave alive. Madrid then finds Nicole and tries to talk to her, but she rebuffs him. Army intelligence picks up some unauthorized radio transmissions, which lead 5-0 and company to Wofat's lair. He's not home, but there's a fun helicopter shootout with his men, one of whom runs inside and attempts to set fire to the building to get rid of any trace of nefariousness. However, he's shot dead and the fire is quickly extinguished. Dano finds some uncharred remains of the tape-recorded good news in the trash. Upon investigation, they realize they'll need help to decipher it. Meanwhile, Che Fong confirms that Wolfat had Price slash Kurtz killed. In other news, someone attacked Treasury guy Carter and stole the fake bill. Surprise! It was Misha, which he reveals to Wofat on his boat. It seems that Wofat had denied the existence of the plates, but now Misha has proof. He also has a proposition. Russia will offer their resources to get the plates, and then they go halvesies on them. However, that means the plates can't be used, and Wofat isn't keen on that. He tells Misha he'll think about it, but he doesn't really need his help. Steve goes to the hotel to talk to Nicole. She's been under surveillance all day, but Steve still asks her about the missing $20 bill, which she denies any knowledge of. Steve then taunts her, saying that in the race for the plates, she's going to come in second. He leaves Nicole alone by the pool, save for the little old lady knitting away nearby. It ultimately comes down to Chin to decipher the code since it's in Chinese, but all they have are five letters. Z-I-L-M-A. Steve puzzles it out on a piece of paper. As it happens, it's part of the name of a ship, Brazil Maru, which 5-0 wisely deduces that the plates are arriving on. So does Wofat, who has the ship under surveillance. However, they're all trumped. Nicholson got to them first. He's working with Nicole, who is currently making a deal for the plates with Misha. 
Part 2 begins with Jonathan Kay being an absolute prick about Steve not anticipating that his old friend Nicholson would be a turncoat. The only reason they found out at all is because 5 and Wofat forced his hand. Nicholson calls Kay and asks for $2 million plus amnesty in exchange for the plates, which Kay agrees to, much to Steve's dismay. After all, Kay doesn't care about justice, just getting the plates back. Steve checks in with Kono, who's had his eye on Nicole. She's been alone all day, and Misha hasn't been back since the previous evening. Steve confronts Nicole about Nicholson while the knitting old lady knits on, but Nicole doesn't budge. Madrid meets with Wofat, saying he knows where the plates are, but Wofat doesn't need him or his knowledge. He already knows. Madrid insists that Wofat needs him, but Wofat informs him that not only does he not, but he's also becoming a nuisance, and should he impose on him again, Madrid will find it very painful. Nicole informs Misha of the U.S.'s offer, and Misha increases his bid, which Nicole agrees to. Misha then tells her that the bidding is closed. Chin brings in Madrid. Steve calls him out as the unwanted nuisance that he is, and then asks him where Wofat is. Madrid nearly slips, but ultimately won't give him up. Steve warns Madrid that Wofat doesn't like loose ends. At poolside, Nicole is watching the clock and Kono is watching her. She takes a call at the appointed time, which leaves Kono scrambling to trace the call. It's Wofat, up in the offer to $3 million. Nicole accepts, and Wofat informs her that the bidding is closed. Nicole hangs up before Kono can get the call traced. As Nicole leaves the hotel, Madrid again tries to talk to her, but she threatens to scream if he doesn't leave her alone. She gets in a cab, and Chin and Kono follow. Nicole goes to the Ilikai Hotel and gets on the elevator. Chin stays down on the ground while Kono races to the top. Inside the elevator, Nicole throws a muumu on over her dress and dons a wig and sunglasses. She then takes the elevator back down, throwing Kono and Chin Ho off her trail. Meanwhile, Steve talks to Misha telling him that Nicole is making a deal with Wofat. Misha doesn't believe him because it's an old psych-out trick, but Steve also posits that it could be true. Misha later breaks into Nicole's hotel room to find the old knitting lady, his spy, tied up in the bathtub. Doing a rub on a hotel notepad, he finds a peculiar drawing that could be a map. 5-0 is getting down to the wire on this case. Nicholson has more to gain from the deal with the U.S., but Nicole seems only interested in the highest bidder. This is going to end badly. So the reason why this is a two-parter is because it needs time for two things. One, there is a lot of exposition that needs to happen. And two, there is an incredible amount of skullduggery that takes place during this episode. So let's start with the exposition first. Much of this plot explanation takes place when Jonathan Kay gives us our slideshow, but because it's intercut with scenes with Madrid and Wofat, I'm not going to just put it in a sound clip, which I normally would, just to let him do it. What it boils down to is that someone has fashioned currency plates, which when we're first introduced to this crime via the murder, the theft of the really tacky Buddha, and the Buddha's delivery to our beloved Wofat, he breaks it on the ground and retrieves the blanks that are inside out of it. The thing is, is that if you aren't familiar with currency plates, which I'm not, it takes a minute before you realize what exactly is going on. What exactly is going on is that someone has fashioned incredibly accurate uh, American currency plates, $20 bill plates, that as they explain in the slideshow, they are so precise that the only way you can tell they're fake is like certain lines are only off by like millimeters. 
they're that precise. So they believe that China's goal is to manufacture a considerable amount of these fake 20s, which are so impossible to detect. It will devalue America's currency and discredit the country. And it's great when Jonathan Kay is explaining this because he says there are certain types of warfare that countries are reluctant to use. And he goes into saying biological warfare, nuclear warfare. They'll only use those in last ditch efforts, but there is one that is sacrosanct and it's money. If that doesn't tell you how the world goes around right now. Jonathan Kay explains that this was nearly attempted once before in World War II, but it was never executed, unlike many Nazis. So I have no idea if that's true or not. I'm not a World War II scholar, nor did I even bother to Google it, but that's what he claims. And now it's even more imperative because it looks like the plates actually do exist and China's going to go through with this. The thing is, though, is that they don't know exactly who has the plates. China was supposed to have the plates. The undercover United States operative obtained the plates, and it's been nothing but a game of hot potato death since. Any person that gets a hold of these plates ends up dead. And it's been working its way through China and out of the country. This has been exacerbated by the fact that when their undercover agent was murdered for the plates, the U.S. panicked and offered a million dollar reward for them, no questions asked. Because if there's anything the United States does consistently, it's make things worse. So they know that Leo Price was the last person to have the plates, and he is working with Nicole Fleming and Tony Madrid, yet they betrayed Tony Madrid. So they know that if Nicole doesn't have the plates on her, she knows where they're at and how to get to them. She's the main player here, and she will be selling these plates to the highest bidders. Now, the other two players in play they know of are obviously the Chinese, being represented by Wofat, and the Russians being represented by a KGB colonel named Misha. So they have the players, they know the game, they just don't know where the ball is. And it's up to Steve and 5 to track it down. And 5 is receiving help from Ron Nicholson, who now works for the government, but he was friends with Steve and they served together back in the day. And also a guy named Carter, who is from the Treasury Department. And of course, Jonathan Kay is there to be a State Department prick. So now that we have all of this sorted out, we have all the exposition sorted out, know who's who, know what's going on, now let's get into some skullduggery because there is a lot of it. As already has been said, Leo Price and Nicole Fleming have already turned on Tony Madrid. They double-crossed him to save his own skin. He went to Wofat and double-crossed them to Wofat. Of course, your information regarding the whereabouts of Leo Price proved most accurate even worth as much as we paid for it. But I didn't know. I thought, I knew you had the plates. But obviously he did not, Mr. Madrid. So you have performed only a part of the function you promised. Well, I can deliver. Just give me a chance. Leo Price double-crossed me in Penang. Left me to die. A grievance we have since made up for. But I should not like to think that that was the sole purpose of our agreement. Where are the plates, Mr. Madrid? Precisely. They're on their way here. So Nicole's first act is to view Leo Price's body and try to gain access to his personal effects, 
which of course, because Steve's just been briefed, he manages to cut her off. And let me tell you, this woman is absolutely cold. She does not panic when he confronts her with her true identity. She doesn't give him anything besides the key to her room because she knows she has nothing to hide. She knows that the plates aren't in her room. She knows where they are, but she knows she doesn't have them. She knows she's clean and she knows she's going to be under surveillance and she's going to use that to her advantage. This woman is just stone cold. I love her. She also has a great taste in bikini patterns. She's got some magnificent bikinis while she's laying out by the pool, allowing all of this other skullduggery to happen around her. She's letting the bitters come to her. She's very smart. Meanwhile, we have Wofat, who's already tried to obtain the plates through violence and ends up with the blanks, which displeases him. He uses the information he can get from Tony Madrid and then kicks him loose, which was very kind of him. He could have just killed him. And then he gets his intel about the plates arriving on the Brazil Maru. So it looks like Wofat has the most direct line in order to obtain these plates without making any kind of deals. And his ultimate objective is to carry out the plans from Peking, now Beijing, which is to go through with the economic warfare. Then we have Misha arriving in Honolulu on vacation, and Steve meets him when he arrives. Steve McGarrett, Hawaii 5 State Police. You know me? Oh, I know you, Colonel. And I know why you're here. You know that too, eh? A holiday. That's what it says on my visa, Mr. McGarrett. A visa issued by the United States government. Would you care to see my visa? I've already seen a copy of it. We just thought it would be easier to let you use the front door. Easier for all of us. Especially for someone so observant as yourself. Well, have a nice time on your holiday, Colonel. Relax, enjoy the sun and the scenery, but no work. Tell me, do you come down to the airport to greet all visitors to Hawaii? Only some, but all colonels from the KGB. It's a purely honorary title. I'm glad to hear that. You're staying at the Kahala. Is it um, adequate? Well, it's a lot better than the Hotel National in Moscow. <laughs> I absolutely love the interaction between Steve and Misha. They both know who the other person is. They both have almost a sense of humor about what they're doing, about their jobs, and about the reason why Misha's there. It's almost fun for them in a really weird way, but it's a fun interaction. So Misha has a little bit of heads up that he knows Five-O is looking out. Now Misha's goal is to obtain these plates and he's willing to make a deal with Nicole to get them. And it appears that he does eventually, but he also ends up verifying the existence of the plates by stealing the sample $20 bill that was hidden in Leo Price's watch. Because after Nicole visits the morgue and asks about Leo Price's personal effects, Steve has Che Fong look closer at them, which Che thinks is ridiculous because they've already figured out that he wasn't a soldier and they already know his identity. There was no evidence there and the boot is missing, but he does. He goes through and realizes the watch isn't running and he gets the $20 bill out of the back of the watch, which he gives to Carter. Carter verifies that it's one of the sample counterfeit $20 bills. 
Carter is then attacked in his office and the bill is stolen. Turns out it's by Misha. And Misha steals this bill and takes it to Wofat on his boat. Because at this point, Wofat's main lair has been raided. And it's a great lair because it's like some kind of an outpost, like a lookout kind of post up on this big cliff. And it's got a big, probably a helicopter landing pad and everything and overlooks the ocean, has a beautiful view. And Wofat wasn't there, but Five O did figure out where it was thanks to the Navy monitoring shortwave signals and picked up some that were not authorized, which was Wofat's good news about the Brazil Maru. Five O was able to pinpoint that location. We have a great helicopter shootout, which involves it's both Danny and Steve shooting from different helicopters, shooting at the bad guys that are on like the layer terrace. And one of the guys takes a hit and falls over the railing. So he goes off the cliff and it is the most magnificent extended henchman death because we watch him fall all the way down and we get the sense of just how high this, this cliff actually is. It's marvelous. It's literally like 30 seconds of dummy falling down a cliff. Beautiful. But anyway, Wolfast Lair has been raided, and 5 obtains part of the good news, which they take back to the office, despite the attempts to burn everything down, which I have to admit is smart by the, by the henchmen that managed to attempt it, was if you're going to die, you might as well get rid of the evidence. 5 manages to get some, they take it back to the office, Wofat is on his boat talking to Misha. Misha presents him with this $20 bill and says, so uh, your denial about these plates turns out to be just that. Conceded. The plates exist. Which brings us to the prime question, their possible use. Uh, Moscow is willing to ignore the unilateral action taken so far. Moscow is most generous. The race now being run as pointless, Moscow will win, as always. But competition between comrades is wasteful unless there is some constructive purpose to be served, beneficial to both. And as always, Moscow has a proposition to make. Exactly. We combine resources, thereby guaranteeing recovery of the plates. There are two of them, there are two of us. One in Peking, one in Moscow thereby assuring their safety as an effective threat against the Americans. It also assures that they will not be used. Someday our Chinese comrades may have as much to lose as we do. It is possible to achieve prosperity and true socialism at the same time. Is it? At the moment it seems you have almost as much to lose as the Americans. And we can only gain Again, if you are not familiar with how currency works, there are two plates for every bill. There's a front and a back. I'm learning right along with you. The thing is, if they go halfsies, China has one plate, Russia has the other plate, they can't be used, which is kind of beneficial to Russia in the sense that they know China can't pull anything, but it's not beneficial to China because they can't pull anything. And despite Misha's offer for his resources to acquire the plates, Wofat doesn't think he needs it. Because obviously he's a little bit ahead of Misha on the knowledge of where the plates are and how they're getting to Honolulu. So he tells Misha this, which doesn't exactly please Misha. So real quick recap, Nicole is lounging by the pool, knowing that her ship is coming in, literally. 
Wofat also knows her ship is coming and is making plans to get to said ship. Bisha, since he can't secure a deal with Wofat, he's making plans to have a deal with Nicole. And one of the loose ends in all of this is Tony Madrid. Tony Madrid has now been double-crossed by Nicole and Price. And he's also been let go from Wofat's employ, so to speak, because he's, his usefulness has run out. However, Tony doesn't want to let go of any of this. He still wants to be in on this big score. So he keeps going between Nicole and Wofat, trying to be useful, trying to get himself back in. And he really can't. Nicole totally rebuffs him, just completely shuts him out. And Wofat entertains him, but ultimately rejects him later and rejects him with the warning of, I will do you a serious injury if you don't stop this. And what's great is even Steve brings Madrid in and points out how useless he is and that he's lucky to be alive and that he is a nuisance and a gnat of a human. Mr. Madrid, you're a little man. You're playing a game that's too big and too fast for you. Now in Macau, you're on the inside. All that has changed. Nobody needs you here. You're just a small nuisance, a hurdle in everybody's way. Look here, I'm not finished. Now, they're going to run right over you. I'm surprised they haven't done it already. Maybe it won't be as easy to get rid of me as you think. So, Madrid seems to be a wannabe player in this particular game. The other person that we have in this scenario that you only kind of half notice is the lady knitting at the pool. When they first introduce her, I think Steve just gives her a glance as he passes her by because she's knitting by the pool. No big deal. And he goes and talks to Nicole. And we repeatedly see her nearby Nicole knitting. They never interact. But it seems like she's a nosy old lady. She knows there's something going on with Nicole and Steve. But she's a non-involved person. And we don't find out until later in the second part that she actually is. And it turns out she's a spy for Misha. And that's how he's being helped in securing his deal with Nicole. So at this point, everything is going fine for Nicole because her her ship's coming in and everything. However, thanks to, I think it's the local radio station because their tape recorder at 5.0 can't slow down the audio enough to be able to decipher it. They have to get a radio station's help with their equipment to do it. And then they do. And it, they still can't decipher it because it's in Chinese. And so they have to get Chin Ho in there. And Chin Ho is our hero. And he deciphers it. And it's Z-I-L-M-A. So they can only identify the five letters. And they don't know what it is. And somehow they figure out, oh, this is the name of a ship. We don't see how they figure that out. I'm just guessing it's Steve 506 cents. After all, he is our superhero. They get to the dock, board the ship. Wofat is there, but he has the ship under surveillance and he sees Steve show up and he's like, oh, son of a bitch. This complicates my life. However, Steve thinks that, okay, we're going to get the plates back. Everything's groovy. Until he talks to the captain, and the captain tells him, oh, hey, no, one of your people have already met with us, like, before they even docked, and he took whatever contraband it was, and you'll have to talk to this engineer to find out what it is. And they're like, well, who did that? And it turns out, swerve, it's Ron Nicholson. So our government man in uniform is a turncoat, and they find that out really quickly. They confirm it when they find the engineer dead. So they know that Nicholson now has the plates. And at the end of the first part of the episode, we see Nicholson call Nicole. 
So it's apparent that Nicholson and Nicole met some at some point in China while he was tracking these plates and the dead bodies in their wake. And Nicole used her womanly charms on him to help her secure the plates and she's going to get the money for the plates and then they're going to go live the high life wherever there's no extradition, I guess. I don't know. All sounds really well and groovy, except because of 5 finding out about the ship and Wolfat finding out about the ship, it forced their hand, so Ron had to go and obtain the plates before 5 and or Wolfat could get to them. And so now he's out in the open and he's in the wind. And I know what you're thinking. Could there possibly be any more skullduggery? Yes. Yes, there is. There is plenty of skullduggery in part two. Because part one ends with the reveal of Nicholson working with Nicole and Nicole making a deal with Misha. Part two opens with Jonathan Kay being an extraordinary prick and asking Steve why he didn't realize that his friend from his service days would do something like this and why Steve didn't realize that he was a traitor. Why, Steve? I want to know why. Nicholson was working on the case in Macau and the plates were there. That's when he must have gotten the idea. I know that, Steve, but I want to know why. How do I know why? Greed, avarice? All I know is that's where he met Nicole Fleming. You were at the academy with him. You knew him well. Why couldn't you have anticipated it, Steve? That man was screened and tested, loyal for years. And now we discover he had a price after all. A woman. Are you finished? As if Steve has some sort of psychic sense, or he knows the inner workings of this man who he knew in the service but hasn't really been around in the last few years. It is an amazing display of prickishness, and the look on his face when Steve asks, are you finished, just reflects of how used this man is to being a prick and not having to answer for it. And it even looks worse when Nicholson calls Kay, asks to make a deal. He'll turn over the place for $2 million in amnesty and Kay grants it. Because ultimately Kay has no concern for justice. He's just trying to stop this economic warfare, which on one hand you can kind of understand. And on the other hand, he's a prick. So Steve's job has not ended. Vivo's job has not ended because now they're going to try to acquire these plates to stop this deal from happening because ultimately they want to capture Nicole Fleming and Ron Nicholson for their crimes and see justice be done. That is Steve's ultimate goal always. So I told you there's more skullduggery and there is more skullduggery. Nicholson informs Nicole of this deal with the U.S., $2 million in amnesty, and he really needs that amnesty. Nicole then turns that into a bargaining chip, and she gets Misha to up the price, I think $2.5 million, which gives us a glimpse of the fact that she really kind of doesn't care about Nicholson too terribly much. Just a wee hint. So she makes this deal with Misha, and Misha says, okay, the bidding is closed. He's like, takes her hand and squeezes it really hard to, to get his point across. And it seems to work. However, Wofat is not going to give up on this. She knows that. In fact, she's counting on that. While Kono and the other HPD officers have Nicole under surveillance, and she's not left the hotel at this point, she's pretty much hanging out at the pool with the knitting lady, Kono does notice that she is acting a little bit strangely after her deal with Misha. She's watching the clock. And she gets up at a certain time and goes over to the bar 
just in time for a phone call. And that phone call is from Wofat and Wofat is upping his bid to $3 million, which she accepts. And again, Wofat tells her the bidding is now closed. And for once, it seems that Nicole is satisfied with that. She doesn't think Misha's going to go higher than $3 million, I guess. Or she thinks that Wofat will come through with the $3 million without any delays or hangups. While she's on the phone with Wofat discussing this deal, Kono goes running into the hotel switchboard room to try to trace the call. Bless his heart. Wiki wiki. So another HPD officer is keeping an eye on Nicole. He's trying to rush the operator, hurry, hurry, trace this call, and they disconnect right before they can trace the call. Poor Kono, he tried. But Steve is reasonably sure that the call was from Wofat and he was upping his bid. And of course, Steve is right because he knows Wofat. So our next little bit of skullduggery comes in and it comes in from Steve. Because Steve goes to Misha and says, hey. You were a stalking horse, Colonel. She's making the deal with Wofat. <laughs> Do you know, if I were in your place, that's precisely the kind of thing I would say. Rocking the boat, I think you call it. A rather basic psychological maneuver, I'm afraid. Or maybe I'm telling the truth. <laughs> well, you know, I hadn't actually considered that. Considering the lady in question, I would, if I were you. And again, the interactions between Misha and Steve are absolutely fabulous. I mean, you know me, I love a Steve Wofat interaction. It gives me life. We don't get any in this particular episode. So we're settling, in a way, for Steve-Misha interactions, and they come through. Also, the Steve and Nicole interactions are also really great, because she is stone cold and Steve is not deterred by that and still is able to rattle her a couple of times, if just a little bit, including when he tells her that she's going to come in second, if she's still alive when it comes to the race for these plates. But the Steve-Misha interactions are fabulous, including this one, because now Misha's kind of taking Steve seriously that this could be a fake out, but it also could be true. So he goes to check in with his knitting lady and finds her tied up in the tub and realizes that Steve was right and that he's being cut out of this deal. And he looks through her things and finds the hotel stationery pad. And he, when he does the, the pencil trick and goes over the pad to check out the indentations and he sees this weird drawing, which Misha isn't sure what it is, but pretty much the only thing it could be is a map because it doesn't look like much else of anything else. But if you're not familiar with Hawaii, you won't know where this map is because it's literally just the lines. There's no other indication of where it could be in Honolulu. So while Misha is now lamenting and thinking about how rough the winters are in Siberia and how uncomfortable a gulag might be, Nicole is leaving the hotel so she can go meet Wolfat and make this deal. Here's the thing. She knows she's going to be trailed and she's being trailed by Kono and Chin Ho. She leaves the hotel where she once again runs into Tony Madrid, who again implores her to cut him in on this deal because Wofat's once again cut him out. And she at one point tells him, if you don't get away from me, I'll scream. And when he doesn't back down immediately, she actually acts like she's going to scream and he he backs off and she gets in the cab and, and leaves with Kono and Chin Ho trailing her. She goes to the Ilikai Hotel. Now, the way the hotel is set up, there is like in a courtyard, I think, there's a glass elevator that's on the side of the building it's like it's in like a corner of the building so when you come up from the lobby you get this grand view of the courtyard and the surrounding scenery she gets on that elevator 
and starts her rise up. There's an express elevator that goes all the way to the top. Kono takes that elevator while Chen Ho stays at the bottom in the courtyard and watches this elevator go up. She's the only one in the elevator. Once she gets to a certain floor, because she's high enough now that she knows that Chen Ho really can't see into the elevator, she pulls this beautifully patterned, just an absolute loud print, Mumu, out of her bag, throws it on over her, throws a wig on, ties the wig on with a kerchief, puts on sunglasses, and for the added effect, puts in a stick of gum, starts chewing gum. When she gets to the top floor where Kono is waiting for her, the elevator doors open, and there's a group of people waiting to get on the elevator, and she turns around and says, just looking. And so she doesn't get off the elevator. Everybody gets on the elevator. They go back down. Kono is now confused and gets on the elevator, the express elevator, to get downstairs. Meanwhile, Chin Ho is waiting at the bottom of the elevator. All of these people get off. None of them look like Nicole when she got on the elevator. By the time Kono gets downstairs, they've lost her. I absolutely love, 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 love the way she ditches this tale. It is so clever and so simple, and it's exactly what you would expect from a woman like her because she is so amazingly cold and so calculated, just so smart about everything. Nicole's first stop after gaining her freedom is to go to see Ron, who's in an RV down by the ocean, which is just a classier version of a van down by the river. And she mentions to him that Misha and Wolfat both upped their bids, which upsets Ron because he doesn't want that. He needs the amnesty, most of all. The $2 million is nice. They're going to live comfortably for the rest of their lives in exile, but he needs that amnesty. Misha offered two and a half million, and then Wolfat contacted me. He offered three. Nicole, that's not what we talked about, what we agreed on before I went out to the boat. Telling you what they said. Well, you, 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 you're just shopping around, going for a top bid. I can't afford it anymore. You know that. I know, darling. I, I need that amnesty. You don't know McGarrett like I do. If I don't get that amnesty, I'll never get off this rock. Oh, Ron, don't worry. That's not going to be a problem. Now we're all set. And she sues him and has him give her one of the plates. The other plates is hidden where they agreed upon, which is where that map comes into play. And then once she's satisfied and he's satisfied, she kills him. You kind of saw this coming a mile away because she's already betrayed like two of her partners and she's playing Wofat and Misha against each other to get the highest bidder. How did you not see it coming that she was going to get rid of you too? But men are notoriously egotistical and blind when it comes to women. And they think, oh, she can't possibly cheat on me, even though she cheated on her previous person with me. Same kind of scenario here. So once she gets rid of Ron, she takes the plate and she meets up with Wofat. Now, what I absolutely love about this is because they're making their deal in public. It's in a public place. And she presents him with the briefcase but there's only one plate. And he, when he questions her on that, she says there are detailed instructions to get to the second plate because he's already delivered the money. The money's already been wired to her bank account. And he says, well, you're going to accompany me to get this other plate. And she said, no, I didn't promise personal delivery. Dear lady, I understand your position completely. Will you let go of me? However, I must consider the other possibility that your wish to take flight at this point is prompted not by thoughts of personal safety, but by thoughts of still greater wealth. That's not true. We made a deal. A 
try to know that you haven't been tempted to make a similar deal with one of several bidders. Is it possible? Another three million for the other plate? If you don't let me go, I'll scream. And bring the police down upon me? Possibly even Mr. McGadditt? <laughs> Do you think that I would hesitate to kill you just because this is a public place? Look there, Miss Fleming. And there. Their instructions are precise. If you do not accompany me now, then alone, you will not move more than five steps in any direction. Shall we go? God, I love Wofat. And I love that interaction because it is a meeting of two stone-cold people to see which one was going to melt first. And ultimately, it was Nicole. In the meantime, we have 5-0 playing catch-up. They've found Nicholson's body. Now they need to find Nicole, Wofat, and the plates. And part of how they do this is figuring out where Nicholson has been to determine where he might have hidden the plates because they know Nicole doesn't have them and they can't find them in the RV. So it's possible that Nicole knows where they are, but they need to find out where he's been because the plates might still be there. And they end up doing this by doing the old mileage calculation because he rented that RV and determining that wherever he drove, there's new asphalt. The road is being repaved. And so they narrow down all of the possible spots where repaving is happening. And they overlay that with the circumference of where the mileage would have gotten the RV. And they come up with like three different spots. And the asphalt thing, because I guess roads in Hawaii get repaved often due to mudslides. So the asphalt thing was actually used in a, an episode of the 2018 Magnum P.I. as well. That's how they located a dead body, was through asphalt. So here they use that to narrow down where the plates might have been. And ultimately, Steve ends up going to Misha for help, thinking that because he's been betrayed, he will be more helpful. And thankfully, Steve is correct. Misha actually provides Steve with the map that he found, which turns out to be very useful. And if you thought with the map in hand, we would be all out of skullduggery for this episode, you'd be wrong. There's no conning involved when it comes to this guest cast, so let's take a closer look at them. Ron Nicholson was played by John McMartin. He was Charles Chandler on Beauty and the Beast and Julian J. Roberts on Falcon Crest. He also turned up in episodes of East Side, West Side, Medical Center, The Partridge Family, The Bob Newhart Show, and Bob, Cannon, Phyllis, The Rockford Files, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Heart to Heart, The 1980 Magnum P.I., Murder, She Wrote, The Golden Girls, Cheers, Empty Nest, Coach, Frasier, Spin City, Oz, and Law and & Order. He appeared in the movies No Reservations, Kinsey, A Shock to the System, Who's That Girl, Dream Lover, Pennies from Heaven, Brubaker, All the President's Men, and Sweet Charity. And he appeared in the TV movies Fear on Trial, Fatal Weakness, Butterflies, and Day One. Nicole Fleming was played by Sabrina Scharf. This is her second and third episodes of three episodes. She was also in 40 Feet High and It Kills. Misha the Bear was played by Roger C. Carmel. This is his first and second of three episodes. 
He's probably best known as Harry Mudd on a couple of episodes of Star Trek, but he was also Roger Buell on The Mothers-in-Law, Lawrence Brody on Fits and Bones, he was the voice of Cyclonus on The Transformers, and he was Colonel Gum in the Batman Green Hornet crossover. And he appeared in episodes of The Naked City, The Patty Duke Show, Route 66, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Munsters, The Man from Uncle, Hogan's Heroes, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, I Spy, Ironside, Banachek, Macmillan and Wife, Chico and the Man, Get Christy Love, All in the Family, BJ and the Bear, Three's Company, Laverne and Shirley, Heart to Heart, and Different Strokes. He appeared in the movies Hardly Working, Thunder and Lightning, Myra Breckenridge, Skullduggery, and The Silencers. And he was in the TV movies... Anatomy of a Seduction, and Terror at Alcatraz. Jonathan Kay was once again played by Joseph Sorolla. This is his third and fourth episodes out of five. We also saw him playing Jonathan Kay in Three Dead Cows at Makapuu. Tony Madrid was played by the great and wonderful Monty Landis. He was Michael on The Feather and Father Gang. He was also in seven episodes of The Monkees, playing different characters, almost always a bad guy. He also appeared in episodes of The Girl from Uncle, Get Smart, Batman, McMillan and Wife, Columbo, Police Woman, The Man from Atlantis, The Golden Girls, Sledgehammer, The Golden Palace, and the 1995 Burke's Law. He appeared in the movies The Underachievers, Real Genius, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Body Double, Linda Lovelace for President, Young Frankenstein, Myra Breckenridge with Roger C. Carmel, The Pure Hell of St. Trinian's, School for Scoundrels, and The Mouse That Roared, and he was in the TV movies Never Con a Killer and Fold a Roll. Carter was played by Howard Gottschalk. This is his second of six episodes. He was also in Kiss the Queen Goodbye. Colonel Pierce was played by Richard Gossett. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in Tiger by the Tail and Beautiful Screamer. Corporal Kurtz was played by Tim Tyndall. This is his third of five episodes. He was also in Tiger by the Tail and Not That Much Different. The Customs Inspector was played by Edward Sheehan. This is his seventh of 15 episodes. Captain DeJong was played by Ed Ferdinand. This is his third of 13 episodes. We also saw him in The Ways of Love and Savage Sunday. Lee Foy was played by Melvin Kwan. This is his first and second of two episodes, and these were his only credits. Mrs. Spencer was played by Peggy Almansky. This is her first and second of four episodes, and these are her only credits. And The Doc was played by Robert Casa. This is his fourth and fifth episodes of 12 episodes. And that is FOB Honolulu Parts 1 and 2. This is actually a pretty good two-parter, just in the sense that there might not be a lot of, like, overt action outside of the terrific helicopter assault on Wolfat's lair. But there is enough cloak and dagger stuff and enough betrayals and reversals and swerves and skullduggery to keep you entertained. And the whole time, 5 is working very hard to piece all of these clues together in order to obtain the plates and see that justice is served. And that kind of means going against the State Department, which we're fine with because Jonathan Kay's a prick. What really, really makes this episode is the character interactions. Like I said, Steve and Misha together are fantastic. Steve and Nicole together are fantastic. And of course you have excellence himself, Wofat. 
skulking through this episode being woe fat, which is always a glorious experience. And then you throw Monty Landison as Tony Madrid, who really is just a, an annoying gnat of a person, but it's Monty Landis. So he really sells it and makes that kind of annoyance enjoyable. It's all of these good character moments. And, and not to say that, you know, Ron Nicholson, John McMartin wasn't good. He was. But the thing is, is that Ron Nicholson is your swerve, is your ultimate betrayal right there. So he plays it pretty sober throughout and is kind of the straight man for all of these other much grander personalities that are clashing and interacting. He holds down the fort, so to speak. So it may be kind of a quiet two-parter. And like I said, it's a two-parter because there is a lot of exposition that needs to happen for the audience to understand the plot of exactly what's going on. And so everybody can get the roles straight on who's who and who's doing what, because like I said, there is a lot of skullduggery that happens. So it's a quieter action-wise two-parter, but it's still very, very entertaining. And it's all due to the personalities. Casting is everything when it comes to episodes like this. You're going to want to give it a watch. Nicole. Get away from me or I'll scream. Nicole, please. I'm warning you. But I have to talk to you just for a minute, Nicole. All please. Right. No, no, no. And that is episode 35 of Bookum Dano. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And I hope you enjoy the two-parter if you ever get around to watching it. And if you don't, I hope you just enjoy me talking about it. But really, you should watch it. Really elevates the experience to see Wofat and company in action. But as always, thank you for listening. Your ears are always appreciated. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want to experience me singing the praises of Wofat in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So make sure the backstabber that you love isn't stabbing you, and you never fail to put that State Department prick in his place. Until next time. Aloha.